All right, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Saber Sims DFS Office Hours. It is Tuesday, July 26th of 2022. Thank you for tuning into the stream here today. We've got a lot of questions to dive into here. It's going to be a busy stream. I'm looking forward to it, ready to get into this here. Uh, so we'll just dive in pretty quick here. Before we get started, uh, my name is Jordan. I'm the head coach here at Saber Sim, and this show is an open Q&A style show where I answer questions from the SaberSim community. So uh, we've got a lot of those questions to answer here today, as I mentioned already. But if you're listening along, whether you're with me live or catching the recording of this, and you have a question you would like me to tackle on this show, there's a couple ways to get it answered. The best way is to ask it in the Office Hours channel in Slack. If you're not already a part of our Slack community, there's a link to join in the description of every past show. If you're watching me live, first of all, what's up, live crew? Uh, you can always ask your questions in the YouTube chat here live as we go along. And if you catch the recording of this show, uh, the podcast version, the video version on YouTube, wherever you're listening or watching this, uh, you can also email us, support at sabersim.com. I know uh, a lot of especially people watching this for the first time, catching their first office hour stream, uh, a lot of times we'll toss a question into email and that is a perfectly fine way to go about it. So uh, a lot of different ways to get your questions answered here. Uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Because we got a lot we want to talk about here. Um, so I'm going to start. We're going to bounce around a little bit today. Um, but I'm going to start here. Uh, I think this is a good opportunity um, from Jeremy here to talk a little bit of baseball showdown uh, stuff here. Um, I will mention. So I did um, talk about this a little bit last week as well. Uh, so let me pull this up real quick here. Um, so last week or wait, was it? Yeah, it was the end of last week here, July 22nd stream. Uh, so good opportunity, actually. Let me just mention this real quick here. Um, so one thing, so we timestamp every Office Hours video here. Um, so if you ever miss an Office Hours uh, or, um, you know, just want to go looking for something or whatever, um, we, we timestamp these all based on kind of what we're talking about. So last week, uh, the question that actually came in was about editing exposures for baseball showdown. Uh, so that's why this is timestamped. I don't know if that's kind of hard for you to see, but it says uh, right here, right? Um, MLB showdown exposure settings. But uh, anyway, if you just click this here, you can go back to this exact segment where I basically kind of did a demo of using Saberson for baseball showdown here. Um, and then the really cool thing about this here is if you're on the channel, um, because those timestamps are in the description, you could search something like MLB showdown here. Um, and you can basically see, um, you'll get, you'll get a bunch of different things here. First of all, we do have a video up about baseball showdown, uh, came out a year ago. It's on a, on an older version of, of SaberSim here. Uh, but a lot of the information there is still very useful. Um, and then basically it'll pull up like every video where it's ever been timestamped with base MLB showdown somewhere in the description, right? So obviously a lot to get through here. Um, but just a good resource to know that this is that this is out there. Um, and I'll, I'll also, I'm I'm perfectly fine like answering questions that I've talked about before. That's that's kind of the point of this show. But I just wanted people to know that that is there as a potential resource. But anyway, let's talk about showdown strategy a little bit here. And I think Jeremy had mentioned as well that he is on the um, starter plan. So we'll do this kind of. Uh, not using a research, not a 1500 lineup research build. Uh, and in fact, I actually don't think you really even need to use a 13, a 1500 lineup research build really at all for, for your showdown. Um, I think in a lot of ways, SaberSim is really, really well optimized to beat showdowns of all different sports. Uh, and that's basically because the, the fundamental goal, the fundamental optimal strategy of a showdown contest is basically 
perfectly complemented or, or perfectly, uh, you know, addressed, I guess, using simulations, right? If we think about basically what we're trying to do here, right? This is a single baseball game, right? We are trying to come up, we are trying to figure out, you know, how, what are the different ways that this baseball game can play out, right? How, what are the, the game scripts? What is the range of outcomes of this game? How could it, how could it end up? Right. Then, you know, assessing some kind of probability of how likely different outcomes are. Uh, is it more like how likely is it um, that this game, you know, has a finishes with 12 total runs versus three total runs versus a, about the average total runs, which is what eight here. Right. And then from there, building the optimal DFS lineups to represent those different game outcomes. Right. If we say, well, you know, for one reason or another, we think that this game is likely to go over or under the total or, or be close or be a blowout, right? How do we build a lineup that accounts for that? Simulations solve both of those problems essentially right out of the box, right? So we, we simulate every game on the slate thousands of times play by play, right? We get the full range of outcomes of each of these different players and, and, and of the game itself. And when you build lineups with SaberSim, right, we are going to use by default for almost all baseball showdown contests, a single game simulation to use as the projections for each individual lineup, right? I cannot stress enough how valuable that is, right? Just getting to there, just getting to lineups that are represented, that are true, that are represented by a single sim, right? That are an optimal for a single simulation. It, it, it could, it, you could take you an hour to do that on a traditional optimizer, just using the average projections and trying to step through and figure out like, is this lineup actually a lineup that, that makes sense as an optimal lineup? That part of the process is automated, uh, is automated basically by, by Saberson, by leveraging the simulations, right? So when you come in here and build lineups for uh, a baseball showdown, I, I honestly, I'm not sure if there is another sport type I, I, actually, I don't even know if this is true. The lineups that you are getting on right out of the box using SaberSim for any showdown contest are going to be very, very, very good because they answer the two basically fundamental questions behind what we're trying to do in showdown, which is figure out what are the game scripts, right? That's handled by simming the game out. And then what are the DFS lineups associated with each individual game script, right? And that's what happens when we go through the lineup building process. Uh, to make it even better, right? Uh, the Saber score calculation here will actually add on kind of one layer, one more layer there and basically grade the lineups by uh, likelihood of being optimal, right? How often they are actually, how for how many simulations is this lineup optimal? And what is the raw scoring upside of that lineup when it has a ceiling outcome, right? Um, and here we go. We get like these great looking lineups that we know are are represented by a single game simulation across the board. So probably sitting there right now thinking, okay, great. So are you telling me all I should do is just, you know, build my 20 lineups and just enter them? Um, I'm saying your 20 lineups or your 150 lineups or your one lineup or whatever is probably going to be very good by default. I think there are a couple good ways to add value to Showdown here. And my favorite thing to do is basically one thing that, you know, at the moment, SaberSim doesn't really do at all by itself. And that is target lineups avoid duplication and target lineups that are be that are less likely to be played by the field right um i think one thing that the field really does poorly in showdowns across the board mostly because when you're building by hand or using traditional optimizers they overvalue the probability of average type outcomes occurring right if you ask kind of the average dfs player to build lineups for this 
this Texas and Seattle slate. I think they are going to basically basically uh, assume that the the probability that the game ends up close to kind of what the average is here uh, far too often, right? And um, ignores the probability of these outlier outcomes starting to take place. So what I typically like to do here with this pool of 500 great lineups is try to target a very specific set of 20 where I can exploit, you know, the field thinking that an average outcome is, is going to happen more often than it does. So a really good example of that right here is, oh, and I'll, I'll just kind of look at the, the totals and how the how the game sets up and kind of just take some stands basically. So one thing, you know, a lot of times when you get teams that have a total, a Vegas total or a Saberson total under about four, you start to end up in a situation where the opposing pitcher becomes a pretty popular captain option. Uh, especially, you know, this isn't a super high total game anyway, right? Um, I think George Kirby is is just going to be a pretty popular captain because his his raw scoring points on average at the captain position are going to be the best, right? Most traditional optimizers, a lot of people building by hand are going to use a lot of him. Um, another thing, I just think Texas bats in general are going to be underappreciated here. People are going to look at averages, right? Like if we sort by average here, right? We see, let's see, right? Top three, so George Kirby, highest right? Then Ty France, Julio Rodriguez, a couple Texas bats, right? The the Seager and Simeon, but then another, you know, Seattle, 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 right? Like you can see average projections are going to favor Mariners bats here because they are the higher projected total. But if we look at the upside, right, then it starts to get a little bit more muddled, right? Clearly Texas bats have, you know, about the same exact upside as Mariners bats. It's one game of baseball, right? So I'll probably favor Texas a little bit more, both in the captain spot and in my actual lineup construction, right? Because again, I'm basically saying, okay, Saberson did the hard work of figuring out what the game outcomes are. What are the optimal lineups associated with those game outcomes? I'm then going to add a little bit of value by selecting certain outcomes that I think are going to be underappreciated by the field. So one, again, I think just fading Seattle, or sorry, um, just fading George Kirby at captain, I think it's a great, great approach, right? Probably going to be a, a pretty popular captain spot. And I might even go one step further there um, and prioritize maybe using a, te- a, a Texas Ranger here um, at my captain. And I will just mess with this and basically kind of see like, what's the impact of this, right? Like, let's do a, let's do this a little bit here. Let's just remove all, all Mariners here at the captain spots. Right. And then what you can do here is see, you know, how many lineups did I have to eliminate to get 20? Right. So now my best overall line, best overall lineup is the sixth ranked lineup in the pool. And my worst lineup is the 98th ranked lineup in the pool. Right. Like I feel I have no problem about this. I haven't even, I'm not even close to the the 500 line. I'm not even close to using all like 500 of my lineups in my pool. I'm, I'm, I'm barely even using a, a fifth of the total lineups in my pool to have this kind of construction. Right. Um, And maybe I'll go another step further here and I'll say, you know, I want to focus on, I don't want to play any lineups that are overweight on the Mariners side. Right. Because again, I think that's going to be popular. I think that's going to be what most people want to do. Right. So now I'm making sure I'm playing um, either balance builds or lineups that are overweight to Texas. Right. And then I'll come back through here and see how things are still looking. Um, you know, you can be more opinionated about this as well. Um, maybe you want to particularly target like just a couple big bats, right? Maybe, maybe you don't want to play Cole Calhoun, who's projected a bat eight at the moment. So now you're betting now your captains are one, two, three, four, five of the Rangers, right? We're playing basically only Rangers stacks. We've, we clear, obviously faded George Kirby in this particular case, and we are still playing good lineups because we know that they are, they are basically backed up 
on the strength of a game sim, right? And we're, we're targeting game outcomes that the field is, is almost certainly going to underappreciate, right? It's very, I would say it's, it's generally, it's, it's probably pretty unlikely that anybody trying to do this same process with average projections or hand building or anything like that is going to properly understand the probability of the Rangers being an optimal like stack in this particular game type. So that's basically what I'm almost always thinking about when I'm playing baseball showdown, right? Is let's Saber Sim do the hard work of figuring out what the game scripts are and building the lineups and let me kind of knowing what the field is likely to do be a little bit contrarian, do something a little bit different. And how this actually kind of looks in practice changes a little bit sport to sport, but the theory of it is basically the same for every sport, right? I do the same thing for for basketball. I do the same thing for football, right? We're, we'll have football season here coming up really soon. We'll have a lot of football showdown content coming out here in the next month or so. I think about football the exact same way, right? Sabersim handles the hard work of figuring out what are the game scripts, what are the optimal lineups associated with it? How can I help in the selection of those lineups to do something that I think is going to be underappreciated by the field, right? I'll take the, um, give me the, give me the underdog in the game with the nine and a half point spread, right? That kind of stuff is kind of how I think about it. So, um, and again, actually, you know, to be completely honest, uh, when I'm playing baseball showdown, I honestly really don't even actually uh, run the research builds as often um, just because I'm, I think, you know, the research build is is really for me to to take a really complicated system of like a, a 10 game baseball slate, for example, and kind of figure out where all the market inefficiencies are. Uh, I, I don't I personally I don't think a single game is as much of a complicated system. Right. Like I, I can kind of just intuitively look at how this game is projected and, and pretty quickly determine where the market inefficiencies are. Right. Like I. And some of that I think comes with some experience, but it's it's typically on the the dog or the the under run team. So, but uh, Jen says, what you just said for showdown, do you think it can be applied to bigger slates as well in practice? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like you can, you know, if you'll start to notice trends uh, and and things of like where inefficiencies typically are, even if you just do like even if you do research builds for a month or two, like one of the things I talked about yesterday is like, you'll typically see uh, that the highest projected owned stack or the highest projected owned couple stacks are the most inefficient ownership. And from there, everything else is kind of close, right? Like if we're looking tonight, I don't even need to run a research build. I'd probably be willing to, to bet that, you know, some combination of Boston and the White Sox are going to be kind of the inefficient hitting stack ownership. And, and most other teams are, like probably efficiently owned or slightly under owned, right? Um, I mean, maybe one other team that you might add on there is potentially the Rockies, um, but I don't know how ownership's totally going to break out tonight. And if we look at pitchers, right, where is the ownership inefficient inefficiency at pitcher? Probably again, I'm not going to run a research build to know this, but I would say probably Nola and Rodon and and maybe even maybe even Shane McClanahan are going to be a little bit inefficiently owned relative to their expectation of success. And then every other pitcher in the pool is probably somewhat efficiently or slightly underowned, right? Like those are kind of common trends. So you can kind of see, you know, I think there are um, there are some some common trends here. Um, this comment says going for the results that are further from the average projection. That is, uh, yes. I mean, so like one thing, so I have kind of talked about this before as well. So you can do a similar kind of trick here or not even a trick, right? You can kind of study this the same way here. If we look like what are the best average projected 
hitters on the slate here tonight, right? And kind of look for a trend of teams, right? Houston, Boston, Dodgers, Twins, Boston, White Sox, Boston, White Sox, Colorado, right? Um, And you can kind of see it's a little bit hard with this many teams on the slate. And this is kind of actually why I said that I can intuitively do this a little bit easier for baseball than I can for a big main slate, right? This is like kind of exactly why, but you can still kind of pick up on, right? Like a couple teams popping off here, popping up here. When you start to sort by like 95th percentile, everything kind of just all gets mixed together all of a sudden, because again, when we're looking at ceilings instead of averages, especially for a sport like baseball and especially for hitters in a sport like baseball, virtually every virtually all like hitters of i guess similar player caliber have the same upside right the the little the little things that really shift average projections matter less at the upside outcomes right so um yes i mean i think i think the the theory of what i'm talking about absolutely applies to everything um i just think it's a little bit easier to sometimes apply in, at an intuitive level when you're talking about a smaller system, like a single game. So, um, but. Cool. Okay. Uh, let's keep it going here. Um, so let's, okay, let's, um, let's jump back here and let's talk about, uh, a comment from Tim that came in yesterday afternoon about these these research builds here as well. And he said, uh, learned a ton for the research build example we did on today's show. Uh, follow-up question, how early should you run it for a 7 p.m. slate? Can you do it at, say, 3 p.m.? Or should you wait until most or all lineups are confirmed? So you can run, like, initial builds to see kind of how things are looking, how things are coming together, basically as early as you want, right? Like, I would say a lot of, game, a lot of days, at least when I have time to do it in the morning, I'll run one and just kind of see where things are are shaking out. Right. Um, you know, where does it look like ownership's going to be a little bit inefficient? Where does it look like there's some opportunities to maybe get a little bit of a lower own play? Um, so, I mean, you can run it basically as early as you want. Uh, the one thing though, is if it's like a core part of your process, like it is for me, I think you should incorporate it into your final lineup building process and make sure you have time to do that. So like when I build, so when I when I actually sit down to build my final lineups for this slate, I'm playing DraftKings and FanDuel, running a final research build on both sites will be a part of my final lineup building process. And I give myself time to do that. Um, that means that sometimes my process starts before we have all lineups, right? Because I need, for me to feel like I'm building the best lineups possible, I need to do that. It's a part of my nightly process. So I make sure I have time for it. Uh, I typically make sure I start my process 15 for me, this is just for me, 15 minutes before lock per site. So I typically, I'll probably start around, um, you know, uh, for me, it's 4.30, 4.35-ish tonight. Um, but that would be 6, 6.30, 6.35-ish on the, the like standard DraftKings Eastern time um, to make sure I have time to do that. So it kind of depends a little bit on how you're going to use a research build a little bit, right? Like if you, if you run one earlier, you're not super concerned about like all the starting lineups. You kind of want to just get a sense of, of like how things are looking. That's fine. Uh, but for me, I, I kind of need that final information um, to, to do, to run my process effectively. Um, I mean, one thing I will mention is unless, unless there's like a significant change in a starting lineup, um, like one of, one of the best players on a team is scratched or something like that right? One of their top elite players or a pitching change. Uh, 
typically you'll find that like the general trends that you've noticed in earlier research builds um, won't change that much, right? Like if Boston is showing up as a very overowned stack today, even if their lineup comes out a little bit different than expected, it probably still will be a little bit overowned even when it comes time to lock, right? Like once you kind of know that, you just know that. Um, the the one other thing I would be aware of is that ownership projections do take some time to kind of dial in throughout the day and they will continue to become more and more accurate as we approach lock. That would be the only other thing that comes to mind is like, since, since research builds are so heavily reliant on ownership, if you run one at like 8, 11 a.m. or something like that, um, you're, you're going to be using not only potentially wrong starting lineups or, or lineups that ultimately are not what ends up becoming confirmed, but also potentially inefficient um, or in, inaccurate ownership projections as that settles in throughout the day. So um, I guess short answer, you know, you run research builds when you need to run them based on what, what your particular process requires. I would say, um, you know, the more accurate information as with anything else that you can have, the better. So the later you can run them as, as the later you can run them, uh, the better. But if you if, if you're going to run research builds, right? Like if you're, if you're running research builds as a part of your process, you're basically at least doubling the amount of total builds you have to run, right? I'm playing on DraftKings and FanDuel, but I'm running a research build on both. I have to run four builds prior to lock. So I need to make sure I have time to do that. Um, that's the biggest concern, right? So, um, all right. Okay. Um, let's see another comment from Jen here. Sure. But in practice, we tend to fade a batter or stack more often than going over the field. This ends up working just fine for showdown, uh, because if Seattle fails, then Texas picks it up. Um, I'm a, I'm a little confused, like on what, what maybe is being asked here. Um, Okay, so there's a little bit more here. Uh, but for larger slates, how do you go about allocating the percentage you save from fading them? In short, how do we prepare for the results that are far from average, but on the positive side? That's a good question. It's a really good question. So um, like in, so I talked about this yesterday as well. So in my research builds, a lot of times I'm more focused on figuring out what team. So let's just run one, right? We've talked about this enough here, um, right? Let's just run one and see here what we're kind of getting, right? And I mentioned this yesterday, so I am more concerned with who I want to fade, right? Because it's it's kind of a probability thing, right? So if I'm going to fade the overowned Red Sox, right, who have who are going to be in 25% of lineups and have a 10% probability of success, right? Like, kind of just thinking about the raw probabilities, it's on my side there because I'm basically fading a 10% likely outcome, right? I'm basically the field. Not not the DFS field, but the all other teams that are not Red Sox makes up the other 90%, right? So I am kind of more often concerned about who I'm trying to fade than play because it it puts you in a situation where the probabilities are on your side. Whereas if you target a particular team and you say, I'm going to play Ranger stacks, right, in the main slate, even if they're inefficiently underowned, right? Even if their probability of success is 3% and their their probability of success is 8% and they're going to be owned in 3% of lineups suddenly the probability is not as much on your side there, right? Because you are now banking on an 8% outcome, right? So I find it hard to, I find it easier to find players and stacks to fade than players and teams and stacks to play from the product of my research build, right? So real quick, we'll just take a look at this. I just want to see if I'm kind of on the right track with the way I was thinking about this, right? So let's look, right? Most inefficiently under-owned, most inefficiently over-owned pitchers tonight on a quick... Gut check here. Uh, Nola, 
Shane McClanahan, Rodon, right? I was kind of, my intuition was success. Uh, was, was my intuition was success. My intuition, my intuition was correct. Um, most, most inefficiently, uh, over-owned hitters on tonight, right? Red Sox, White Sox, all the socks, right? Intuition's correct. Now the question here, right, is okay, great. But like, what teams now do you play? Right. That to me is a lot of times a situation where I let Saberson in, let Saberson fill in the gaps. Right. And that's actually part of the beauty, I think, of what Saberson can do is that it can meet you exactly where your process is at. Right. You take it, you know, if you say, I know that I kind of want these kinds of stacks and I kind of want to avoid these teams and I want to be a little careful with these pitchers. Great. Let Saberson will come in and basically fill in the rest of the gaps because the lineups that it knows how to make are already otherwise good. Right. So honestly, if I was building this here tonight, tonight, last, yesterday, we had a weird slate. And I even mentioned, I mentioned it on stream yesterday. It was a, it was a slate where looking at the research build, it was hard to kind of necessarily know, I think what to do yesterday. Um, I ended up for what it is worth when I built my final lineups, I was almost as spread out on my exposures as I've been on all, been all season, right? I had, like I think my highest exposed player pitchers and batters in 150 lineups was like 25% exposed yesterday, right? I don't think there were very clear stance. Tonight, I think there are, right? I think there are some very obvious moves that I'm going to make here based on that research build. So one thing that, that jumped out, right, is I'm going to just take a stand, at least an initial stand here on the, on the socks, right? Oh, crap. Press the wrong button. Let's go back to the build here. Okay. So one of the things I wanted to do, right? Taking stands on the Red Sox and taking stands on the White Sox. So then what teams do you play? What teams do you target? That's the part I'm going to let, like, get filled in here, right? I don't, I don't care, right? But I'll let the simulations decide. In this case, get into some Toronto, some Cleveland, some Tampa Bay, some Giants. Great. Like that all sounds good. I can do the same thing with pitchers, right? I want to a little bit proceed with caution with these aces up top that I think are going to be a little bit over-owned, right? And you can see actually Saber Sims doing that already for me, right? We're under on Nola. We're under on McClanahan. We're under on Rodon, right? That's the ownership fade in action. But let's say I want to take this stand a little bit more. Okay. Then what pitchers? I'll let that, I'll let Saberson kind of automate that for me. And in, in, in practice, what I would actually do from here is then I would also kind of manage my risk, right? If I were to, if this were, if I were to kind of finalize a build here, if I were to keep going all the way through, I would say, okay, like I'm down for some guardian stacks, but maybe I don't need half of my lineups of my 20 to be guardian stacks or to be some of these, these top guardians here. Right. So a lot of times I kind of have a soft cap of exposure to any one hitter in a pool of 20 lineups of about 40%. That's eight lineups, right? That's, that's purely because any given hitters range of outcomes generally looks something like this, where their most likely outcomes are very close to zero. Um, for 150, a lot of times my highest exposed hitter is around 30%. It can change based on the slate, but, um, but there you go. So you know, and then obviously, you know, edit my stack exposures, do different things like that. Um, but anyway, let me know if that helps. I think that's a really good question. Um, and I hope that I was able to answer that effectively here or, or get at what you were, you were talking about. Um, but let's keep it going here for now. I know we have a lot, we got a lot to keep going into here. So, um, real quick, a question from that Ted had asked as well about these research builds here. Um, 
about using these for golf. He said, can the research build settings be used for PGA as well? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's one of the best sports to use it for, right? Because especially if you're focusing on like larger field stuff, a lot of times you're going to need a lineup that approaches the optimal, right? Um, you're going to need, you tip, I don't think you need like the nuts optimal to take down a contest most times, but most slates, but you, you typically need a very high scoring lineup uh, to beat large field golf contests. So uh, optimizing for and basically using a research build to approximate the probability of a player being in the winning lineup, that number well approximates a player being in the optimal lineup, which is what a research build does. So I think it's a great sport for it. Um, we also recently did a big, uh, we did a big, well, I don't even want to necessarily say it like a huge update. We did make an, an improvement to our ownership model for golf. Um, so the ownership projections for golf, especially as the week goes along, uh, should be quite a bit better now here as well. And I haven't even looked at this this week, um, but I am pretty surprised to see this. So I am interested. I'll have to go look, take a look at the slate upcoming this week. It would not surprise me though, given this field on a very first look, uh, if Cantlay was extremely chalky. Um, but anyway, so yes, great sport for it. Um, I see questions coming in in YouTube chat. We'll get to those here in a minute. I'm going to, I'm going to get through the other questions that came in, in Slack here first. Um, Ed had asked, uh, Hey, quick weather question. I was looking at rotor grinders, weather, and one of the games had a chance to not go nine. What happens to the DK fantasy points up to the suspension of the game? Uh, they count now they didn't used to, but, um, if you I was actually looking this up earlier, um, so they count now they used to not, and it, it used to be such a mess. Um, like you could have, you could have scored points, right. Where like, you know, the game's playing, you're scoring points. And then if the game didn't go five innings, um, or, or something like that, you could just lose them all at once. Um, but now basically every, every point scored up to the point where the game got suspended will count. But that's it. When the game inevitably resumes at some other time, some other day, that those points don't count. So, but so it does mean that for weather risk games, like I know, so for tonight, um, this Royals game, Angels Royals game, there's rain coming in uh, throughout the night, and there's a risk that the game can't finish. For those kinds of games, um, you know, I'll keep an eye on the weather throughout as we get closer to lock and see what I want to do. But for the most, I, I, I will probably play this game um, unless it starts to look like it just has a risk of postponement, right? Like typically the way I kind of end up thinking about it most of the time is that like, yes, you it, losing an inning is not great probably for the average, right? Like if you, if you could just say this game is guaranteed to only play eight innings instead of nine innings, the averages of all the players would probably drop significantly. I don't know if the upside, I don't know if the 95th percentiles would drop significantly, right? Because baseball, especially for, well, baseball is such an event-based sport that like, if the angel stack is going to go off, it's probably going to go off in eight innings just as easily as it goes off in nine innings. So I would probably still play it. Um, but if it, it depends on on the situation because sometimes weather can change too. And, and that game could be, you know, a big postponement risk by the time we get to lock. So but anyway, for the question here, suspended game points counts just like other points do. So, um, okay. 
Uh, let's keep it going here. Um, good question from Jimmy here. Uh, and he said, I primarily build five, three stacks are there pros and cons slash. What are the differences to stacking five players pre-build using the stacking tool versus just deselecting all other build constructions post-build, uh, for the build option for the first option. Is it wise to select team slash batting order? You don't want to play, or would that be too inhibiting, uh, thoughts? Okay. So the difference here, right? So before the build, right, you are instructing the builder to only build lineups of that type post build you are filtering an existing pool of lineups by only lineups that fit that type. If you know exactly what type of lineup you want to see in some capacity before you build your lineups, you should almost always, or I guess basically always give us that information ahead of time, right? And the reason why is we could go over to this build here and let's just reset all exposures. And we could go in here and I'm going to just show you this entire pool real quick here, just for the example, right? So this is a 500 pool size pool uh, where we are um, ultimately trying to select 20 lineups, right? From this, uh, by eliminating all lineups, except for five, three stacks, we immediately eliminate all but 204 lineups from the pool. It is as if our lineup pool was actually only 204 lineups to begin with, which means that pool is less receptive to other changes, right? You have a smaller pool, you're going to be able to less effectively manage your other exposures. It also means that you're going to, you know, not necessarily get the best five, three stacks you could have, right? That's that's the, the other goal of building all these additional lineups is not only just to allow you the ability to edit exposures after the build, uh, but it is also to you know, give Sabersim more opportunities to build each lineup, right? If you need 20 lineups, why not build each lineup 10 different times and then pick the best one for each 20, right? So what you would be better off doing here, in this case, if you know for a fact that you only want five, three lineups would be to, I would say, set both stacking rules and say at least five players from the same team, at least three players from the same team, which will build you a pool of 500 lineups that are all five threes, making sure that the lineup quality on average is higher and that that pool is more receptive to other changes when you're editing exposures and things like that. Um, this is an interesting question. The second part of should you edit uh, teams or batting order? Um, I'll start with batting order because I think it's simpler. I would not. I would not edit batting order. And the main reason why is because there is, you know, some difference in upside for a given hitter relative to their batting order position, right? But it is overrated, I think, first of all. And second of all, it is captured naturally in the simulations, right? Since you are ultimately still going to be using game simulations and buckets of game simulations when you build lineups, if you are getting six, seven, eight, nine hitters in your lineups, it means that in the Sims, those players are having the upside outcomes that are required to make them pay off their spot in the lineup, right? So basically, like you're going to get players at the rate at which they are optimal anyway. So I don't think you need to do that for hitting for batting order positions. Um, and I think the the over the over emphasis on guys that bat like one through six in ba in baseball DFS is way overrated anyway, right? Real quickly, I'll just show you kind of like literally why I think that's true. Um, it's another traditional optimizer thing, right? People building by averages are naturally going to get pushed in a direction where they overemphasize the guys hitting one through six because the average projections for those players are going to be a lot higher, right? We can look here and see. Uh, Jerks and Profar, actually, you know what? 
Uh, Profar or Cronenworth or Machado projected eight points-ish, nine for Machado. Trent Grisham projected to hit nine, projected for 6.85. Mazzara is 6.01, right? That is a 25% difference or more, right? That's a significant difference at the average. Now let's look at the upside, right? Profar, Cronenworth, Machado, 95th percentile outcome is 23 points, 23 points, 24 points, right? Grisham, Mazzara, Kim, 20 points, 19 points, 19 points. That is a much smaller difference, right? Uh, Percentage-wise, right? They have, you know, a relatively similar upside. And that that effect becomes more and more pronounced the higher upside outcomes you're looking at, right? So people using averages to build their lineups are always going to get pushed in the direction of overvaluing players hitting higher in the order because plate appearances, more plate appearances affect averages more than they affect upside. So that's why I don't like really looking at that too much here in my stacks. Uh, In terms of the teams, uh, you kind of put my feet to the fire here a little bit. This isn't something I do, but I also don't really like, I, if you, I guess, uh, let me put this, I'll put this back to you. If you are opinionated about what stacks you want to see, right? So if you say, you know, not only do I want a five, three stack in every lineup, but I only want these five teams to be my five stacks. That is another piece of information that is helpful for the builder to have ahead of time so that your pool of lineups is more receptive post-build, right? I don't do this. So it's hard for me to say, like, do I think it's a good idea or should you do this? Uh, I typically, I will often set a very flexible stack rule that kind of just, like, I will set a stack rule that looks something like this and basically say at least four, but I don't touch anything beyond that. And that's pretty, and then I handle a lot of my other stuff with individual exposures and things like that after the build, because I'm not, I, I want to be clear because I'm not opinionated pre-build about what stacks I'm going to use, right? Even if in a research build, like we were just talking about, I decide I'm going to fade the Red Sox and White Sox. A lot of times I still want to actually run the build to see how much I'm getting, right? And then maybe make a decision, or maybe I choose to be even with the field instead of fully fading them if I was getting a ton of them or something like that. Um, So, but if you are opinionated and you know for a fact that there's a subset, there's a set of teams that you want to stack in your lineups, no matter what, give us the rule and and it'll help us build a better set of lineups. So, Um, okay. Let's keep it going. You guys are awesome. There are so many, there's so many questions today. Uh, and we have quite an audience here with us. So um, thank you everybody for for uh, being a part of this here today. We will continue to go. I'll, I will stream until we get to all the questions answered. Uh, I do see a lot of new faces and names here, uh, or a lot, maybe not faces, but a lot of new profile pictures and names in the YouTube chat here today. Uh, so first of all, welcome everybody. Um, thank you for tuning in. I will get to everybody's questions before we stop the stream. Um, I typically prioritize the questions that come in in Slack in our Slack community first. Uh, so that is what I'm doing here. If you want to join our Slack community uh, to get access to that channel and to the community as a whole and all the other things going on there, uh, it's free. And there's a link to join in the description of every past Office Hours show on our YouTube channel. Uh, so, um, thank you everybody for, for tuning in here and get joined up into Slack and be patient with me and we'll keep it, keep it rolling here as we get through questions. So, uh, this was from, uh, Kino 
And he said, what is the point of having elevator contests in the portfolio? Uh, they have higher variance than diversifiers. So we, can we expect to get higher ROI from them at least? Or are they less top heavy and it's easier to win back like 20x buy-ins playing them? Uh, first of all, what Kino is referring to for those that are maybe a little bit unfamiliar is our DFS profit plan, uh, which is basically our contest selection uh system that we recommend people use. Uh, we did a rigorous contest simulation research project basically to come up with this. We put a ton of work into it and we really confidently believe it's the best way to enter DFS lineups. Um, it is this video. Uh, <laughs> ironic, I read this, ironically, it is not this one, which is literally the thumbnail says the best way to enter DFS lineups. Um, I, I think I got distracted and just kind of like read that uh, it is this one. Start winning more with our DFS profit plan. Uh, if you are confused, I would I would go watch this video here um, because it will kind of provide a little bit of back. I, I don't know backstory, I guess, of what we're talking about here. But uh, the question says, why do we why do we want to play elevator contests? You basically nailed it. Actually, uh, they are softer. Basically, uh, your theoretical ROI is going to be higher in these single entry and three max contests because the average quality of your opponent is a lot lower. Um, the, also, the average quality of each lineup in the contest is a lot lower. There's still a lot of people that throw cash lineups into single entry contests. Um, they are just softer in general. Now, the reason why you don't want to play only those is because your variance is sky high, right? Playing just a single lineup or playing three lineups or even playing a portfolio of only single entry and three maxes and playing 10 lineups is just not enough lineups to realize your EV very quickly. Uh, and your risk of going broke doing that strategy is very high relative to what you stand to gain, even playing that out, you know, 200, 500 slates or something like that, right? So they are elevators are basically soft contests where you have a very high theoretical ROI, but your swings and your variance playing playing those over the long term is very high. Diversifier contests are going to be sharper contests. They're going to be harder to win. Your theoretical ROI would be lower over the long term. Uh, but because you can get so many unique lineups in play, it smooths out your variance and you realize your edge more quickly. So that's why the balance there is kind of important. So. Um, and then, um, okay. This is a really interesting question. This is always a tricky one to answer when this comes in. Do you do much review or back testing after the slate? If so, can you recommend one or recommend one or two things to look out for? Um, I don't do a lot of this. There are a couple things I can recommend. I would say there's, there, there's actually probably more things that I would very particularly be careful about. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make almost like across the board in the DFS world is that I, people will over optimize for a past slate, right? So we had, we had a slate yesterday and maybe you lost half your entry fees, right? And I will, I will hear, or I will watch people sit down and go back to the slate and engineer the builder, whatever tool they were using, whatever, until they get to some lineup that was the nuts. And they will say, okay, so if I had just done this, 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 and that, I would have the nuts and I would have binked. So the next time I play a, I don't know, some some common characteristic, the next time I play an 11-game slate, the next time uh, there is, I don't know, next time Sean Monet is on the slate, the next time I see a game that has a 4.8 and a 3.2 implied total, some other thing like that, they'll say, okay, I press this button and that button and this button and that button because that's what worked when I optimized for the July 25th slate. Right. And the problem with that is that like that is at best 
engineering a process and optimizing to a slate that is never going to be played again. Uh, but at worst, you're you're seeing probably patterns that aren't even there, uh, and um, like potentially making your your process work or like over engineering to uh, a very specific outcome. So what I would instead recommend spending time doing, uh, or if you want to kind of take a closer look, is I would figure out what are what are the core assumptions that make your process work, right? What what do you do? in your DFS process that it makes you somewhat unique, right? To me, in the spirit of a research build, what is what is really fundamentally important is that that ownership, right? Because when we look, like if we pull back our research build here and let's look at the pictures again, right? And this is something that I will like actively think about as I'm doing this, right? what's really happening here. So this is actually a good example, right? So Spencer Strider, we have him projected owned at 23 and a half percent and he's showing up in 23.2% of optimals, right? To me, this is like a, a slam dunk play, right? The highest, the most overall likely pitcher to be optimal at the moment is at best efficiently owned. Well, what this is actually saying is that he is efficiently owned as insofar as that his ownership is 23.5% or lower. And before I go full bore and lock him in and start celebrating that I won all the the money tonight. I should make sure and and think about like is this number fragile? Right? And is it and is if it's fragile is it fragile what what direction is it fragile in? Right? Because if this number is actually 30% or 35% then he's inefficiently overowned, right? And I may have actually made the the suboptimal play. So, I it's kind of a lot of times what I want to think about when I'm researching a slate. Tonight, for example, I actually think this number is is somewhat anti-fragile, or I think if it's fragile, it's actually going to be lower than projected because of the context of who else is on the slate, right? I think people are going to find themselves getting to combinations of Nola, Rodon, McClanahan, uh, even Luis Garcia and Clevenger in really good matchups at kind of a similar price point than Spencer Strider, who has also, since like his what whatever it was, 13 strikeout, a million strikeout game, um, had some games where he struggles a little bit more. Um so I, I think personally for me, I think this number is likely to be, I think this number is likely to come in at around this or lower if it's going to be wrong, right? Um, but that is an assumption. I am making an assumption there. So if I wanted to come back tomorrow and ask myself, hey, like, did, did my process work this late? What I'm not going to do is look at the results. Right. I'm not going to say, oh, I lost money, so the process was bad. Or I'm not, I'm also not going to say, oh, I won money, so the process was good. And I'm also not going to sit here and try to figure out how every way I can adjust projections and exposures and ownership until I end up with the nuts, only using with uh, with information that I never would have had at lock. But I'm going to challenge the assumptions I I had and ask myself, were the assumptions good? And if I come back to at the at tomorrow and find out that, well. A lot of times I do this at lock, right? I'll just look on my phone every time games lock and see how owned players are. But if when the the Braves game locks, if Spencer Strider is at 35% owned, I will probably know that I already messed up no matter what happens in the game, right? Even if Strider throws a complete game shutout with 14 strikeouts, I will, I, I will have probably messed up because I basically made an assumption that this is about as high as this number is going to go relative to who else is on the slate, Right. So that's that's what I would do. So, but that's going to be different for everybody, right? Figure out what are what are what are the assumptions that makes your DFS process work, right? Um, 
because it's not necessarily, I have an ownership game theory based approach that not everybody is going to agree on, right? Maybe, you know, like one thing that I, I, I know, um, like Max has talked about a little bit more, um, is kind of staying, especially early in the season. So we're, we're halfway through the baseball season. I think this is a little bit harder to do, but early in the season, it can kind of take some time for people and projections at large to adjust to changes that have been made throughout the off season, right? Like pitchers get better or, or potentially worse over the off season, just like by training and, and maybe adding a pitch. There's also injuries that take place over the off season. And it's, there's an adjustment period while all projection models are trying to figure out how to weigh that new data. One thing, you know, that you can, look at, especially early in the season would be like pitch velocity or spin rates and look for discrepancies in a pitcher's historical data, uh, versus their recent form. And you might end up saying something like, I know. So Shane Bieber was a really good example of this early in the season where a lot of projection models were really high on him, uh, and his velocity on a lot of his pitches were down, especially his fastball, which is generally an indication that, you know, maybe there's a, the pitchers dealing with an injury or, or something. Right. Uh, now, Let's say you're trying to figure out, do you want to be over the field, over or under the field on Shane Bieber? And you say, I'm going to be under the field because his velocity on his fastball is down. And then Bieber goes out that night and he throws uh, seven innings and gives up two hits and no runs and throws seven strikeouts and he's optimal, right? Well, how would you challenge that assumption? Well, go look at how hard he was throwing the ball last night, right? And maybe he just got lucky, right? Something like that. So I, that that's a harder example for me to step through because that's not like how I typically, I typically, my process does not really involve challenging the projections very often, right? I, I typically kind of trust them and assume that I can come up with a more creative way to, to play the game theory angle than, than the field can. Um, but if that's how your process looks, then do it right. Then, then challenge that assumption, but figure out what are the assumptions of your particular process and, and figure out if, if they're accurate or not, in a way that's not results focused is what I would recommend. So, okay. Um, Mar, Martuan has a good question here. Um, what is the best way to diversify GPP lineup? So you're not getting dupes with other players. Uh, well, Saber Sim handles a lot of this for you, right? And the reason why I would say that this gets handled for you, uh, is because of the way that the lineups using our tools end up getting made in the first place, right? So it, it really comes down to this sim precision slider. So I've mentioned it here a couple of times. We start here, we're sitting down to build lineups for a slate or new slate comes out, right? We simulate every game here thousands of times, right? So we have, you know, we may say that Spencer Strider's average projection is 20.76. And on average, the Braves score four runs. And on average, the, the Phillies score 3.8, right? But looking at this a little bit closer, right? These are these are all descriptive of a of a range of outcomes of what can actually happen right both for individual players and in the game well and we do we we have thousands of these different game sims for each game on the slate right when we build lineups here we bucket those simulations randomly and for any given lineup set the players projections when we're building that lineup to what they scored in a small subset of those sims so if we were running this build right Sim precision is at five. That means every lineup is based on the average projection of a random sampling of 28 simulations. And we're gonna do that 500 times, right? So the, the short answer here is that 
it is unlikely, especially in a large slate like we have here tonight, that randomly sampling every game's distribution of a thousand sims for 28 simulations for every individual lineup and building the best possible lineup, it's it's very unlikely that you're going to duplicate any other player, period, right? Because there's already, there's quite a bit of variance packed into the selection of what 28 sims are used for each individual lineup. But the short answer would be if you want to diversify even further, right? And avoid being duplicated even more above and beyond that, the short answer is to increase the sim precision slider, right? Because if you were unlikely to be duplicated bucketing each game into 28 or each lineup into 28 sims, right? It's certainly going to be less likely that you get duplicated bucketing each lineup into three simulations, right? So as you increase the sim precision slider, uh, you lower your risk of being duplicated heavily. Now you take more risks as well, right? If you're playing lineups that are optimized from three simulations or one simulation, right? You are, you are taking a lot of risk there because anything can happen in one simulation. And th three simulations is also pretty volatile as well, as is even six simulations, right? So you're taking more risk, but you're also going to diversify more. Now, here's a really interesting question, right? What if we're playing baseball showdown and you're trying to avoid duplication and you come over here and you say, great, I watched office hours today. And Jordan said to increase the sim precision slider, wait, it is already 10, right? Well, in some sports or contest types or different things like that, to play optimally and to build lineups that have upside and are appropriately diversified and things like that, you need to look as granular as a single simulation per lineup. So how do we do that then, right? Well, typically the sports where sim precision by default is at 10 are by extension, the sports where you need to worry about duplication most heavily. So how do we do that? That's when I start to recommend some of those strategies that we talked about at the start of the stream, which is intentionally trying to diversify the lineups that you ultimately take with you into your contests. In the baseball example we gave all earlier today, maybe you are playing more overweight Ranger stacks um, as opposed to Mariner stacks because it's, it's less likely to be played by the field, right? Um, for MMA, maybe you are running a research build and you are fading or limiting your exposure to the really chalky underdog, right? There's, there's like always here, do we have a, uh, do we have projections for this week? I doubt it. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe you're, uh, maybe that's what you're doing, right? Um, so NFL showdown, right? Maybe you are, maybe you're fading the chalky game script, right? Maybe the game script that everybody's going to target is a, uh, maybe it's a, you know, a, a late November Thursday night football, right? The ugliest games of all time, right? And the, you've got a game with a 41 and a half point total between like, I don't know, the, the, the Jaguars and the Jets or something like that, right? Well, what is, what is everybody going to do in that game for an NFL showdown? They're going to play the kickers. They're going to play the defenses. They're going to play the running backs, right? So fade them all, fade the kickers, fade the running backs, Fade the quarterbacks, or, or sorry, fade the defenses, play both quarterbacks and four wide receivers or something like that, right? And get contrarian. So um, anyway, let's keep it going. Okay. Uh, another question from Jimmy here. We have two more in Slack, then we'll hop over to YouTube chat. Uh, okay, slates with captains. Uh, examples could be Counter-Strike, uh, League of Legends, Formula One. Is setting exposures the same process, but you're just adjusting that player spot specifically? How does that interact with the team exposure? Um, yeah, basically, 
So, I mean, if you're in here, we'll pull up this build here again. Um, so yeah, if you're, you know, just, you just need to pay attention to what position you are editing exposures for, right? So in the captain position, right, this is saying you have 30% of your lineups use Josh Smith in the captain position, right? Not 30, not, not, a, not a total ownership, right? So he's, he's used in 50, 55% of your lineups as a utility spot. So, um, yeah, I mean, the process is, is kind of the same, um, you know, I, I, I personally, I focus a little bit more on my captain exposures and less on my utility exposures. That's another example of like, my process takes me up to a certain point and I typically let Saberson kind of handle the rest. Like I, I don't typically concern myself too much with the utility exposures. I'll let that kind of work itself out in the wash a little, um, and mostly focus on the, the high leverage captain spot. Um, so um, in terms of like, how does that interact with team exposure? I mean, one thing you'll see is there is a little bit of a push and pull here. So like one of the first things we did when we sat down to build, actually, let's just, I'll just give this example, right? If we have Jesse Winker in 20% of our lineups as a captain by default, and he is in our lineups in 25% as a utility by default, right? Like typically if you choose to fade him at one, you will get more at the other, Right. That's kind of a, there's kind of a general, a little bit give and take there. Um, so that's one thing to be aware of, but that's kind of just like, you know, Saberson clearly thinks Jesse Winker is a good play. So if you choose to fade him at captain, you're going to emphasize him a little bit more at utility. So, um, but okay. Um, uh, good question from T here. Um, is there a range you try to stay within for your lineups? Uh, for example, you try to stay within five to 10 points of your highest projected lineups or within a certain range for ownership. Thanks. Uh, I, I, I don't really necessarily. Um, I, I would say in general there, so there is a couple things I do like to kind of take a look at here. Um, but the one I would say one thing to be very careful of is like a, a rule of thumb, like five to 10 points or so. Right. Uh, it's, you are going to miss, I feel like, uh, the, my, my regulars know what I'm about to say. You're going to miss slate context and you're going to miss contest context, right? Like there's going to be certain slates where, um, ownership is extremely condensed, right? And it's very easy to build very good. Uh, it's very easy to build lineups that are like fade a ton of ownership, right? Um, or there's going to be, you know, there's, if there's, here's another example, if projections are just very high, like maybe it is a, you know, elite hitting environment or something like that, or, uh, an elite, like a, a, a NFL slate where there are six games with a total over 50 points or something like that. Right. Like on a slate where projections just are higher being, you know, 15 points off of the optimal is, is probably more okay than it is on a slate where projections are just lower because for percentage wise, that's a very different thing. Um, there's also a big difference in contests here, right? Like you can, you, you can, and need to take way more risks in large field GPPs than you need to in single entries, for example. So, but one thing I think you can do, and one thing that I think is a good idea is if you have a build, you can use the sorting methods here on the right-hand side and kind of get an idea of like where, where you can, where lineups center themselves, I guess, uh, within the pool at large, right? So like this lineup, when I, when I build lineups, I typically think about my entire pool as being viable, right? So this build is for a 20 max, 10 to 50 K entrance and it's 500 lineups, 
right? So I think you can kind of think about this as like, here's a rough sampling of good lineups you could play in this contest. And you can sort these by different metrics. So for example, we can sort by projected score and we see that the highest projected score lineup here is 109.9. And the lowest projected score lineup is 73.6. So you kind of have this somewhat functional range here of lineups are valid roughly for this kind of contest in between that range. And you can do the same thing at own, with ownership, right? So uh, the lowest overall cumulative ownership or the highest overall cumulative ownership you, you, really that makes sense for this contest is about 155. And the lowest overall cumulative ownership for a lineup that makes sense for this contest would be 19, 19%. That's a big slate, right? I mean, is if you play, if you fade all the pitching chalk and you play two low owned stacks um, and a low owned one off, you you have a, a low owned lineup. So um, 19%. So it can kind of, you know, give you some uh, windows, I guess. And what's nice about this is that it, it will take into account what contest you're playing because the, the settings were optimized for that contest. And it'll also take into account what makes sense for that slate, right? Because it's using the real lineups that would make sense to use for that particular slate. Um, so, but I think that's mostly just kind of, I think that's more useful for research or for like learning for like educational purposes than it is for like a, a night to night process. But you may, you may think differently, um, if there's something that's kind of useful in that for you. So, um, I personally kind of coming back to the core question, I don't like target those. I don't target those numbers in any specific way. So, all right. Um, okay. That is everything in Slack. Let's jump over to my very patient YouTube chat here. Um, okay. Uh, first from Patrick, do you like five, two ones or five threes for max correlation on a 13 game slate? I always like having the one off, but a mini stack is great for the large slate. Yeah. When we start getting to these like really, really big stacks, five, like game slates, like 13, even, even really 13, 14, 15 game slates to me, those are like like extra large size slates, right? Uh, I, I will I will really play aggressively with my stacks. I will really try to correlate, right? There's so many players in a pool. There's so many different ways to build lineups that just being right on the two stacks is a lot of times enough to get a really high upside outcome. Um, I, I will probably say at most, I will want one uncorrelated player in my lineups tonight. And I might also maybe play no uncorrelated players in my lineups. So at most one uncorrelated player would be basically me playing five threes and four fours and four threes and five twos. Uh, I might take that just another step forward and, and basically just say only five threes and four fours um, and just max correlation basically. Um, because again, I think it's just unlikely that even if, even if it ends up being that like, you could have scored a little bit more points by playing a four, three instead of a five, three and getting that one off. Perfect. I will accept that and play some other piece from the, the five stack and just basically count on the fact that in a 13 game slate with a massive player pool, uh, that the field isn't going to, to find that one off, or I, I don't need to find that one off to, to take first. Um, so I will play very correlated on a slate like tonight. Um, so, 
there was a question from Eamon here in chat uh, about a comment Matt made in Slack, and then Matt answered it. Uh, so I'll just read this aloud for anybody who missed it, because I think it's a good point. Eamon said, what's up? Uh, Matt stated in Slack, it's important to enter lower variance contests. What does this mean? And uh, Mr. Hunter himself uh, said... Um, what I meant was smaller contests where your entries take up a larger percent of the overall field. These contests may be slightly lower ROI, uh, but you'll see less variance in your results. I think it's a good point. And I think uh, if you follow the DFS profit plan, uh, you will kind of see your lineup portfolio or your contest portfolio end up with the right variety there. So, um, but, um, Patrick says, does batting order change your strategy in building lineups? I noticed the Nationals had a batting order change up last night. Uh, that was post-lock. Um, to be completely honest, I no, not really. Um, I did a quick check to make sure that nobody was scratched. I would have swapped accordingly if that was the case. Um, otherwise, I kind of left it alone. The only exception would be, you know, I think it's important to know what is your exposure to different stacks when you go into lock. If the Nationals were one of my favorite teams to stack last night, which they were not, uh, I might have looked a little bit closer and potentially late swapped um, if they had had a lineup change, right? Because it, it can affect things, right? Um, but as somebody that kind of generally thinks that batting order is somewhat overrated in terms of being predictive of upside, I'm, I'm not super concerned about a batting order change as long as uh, it doesn't come with a player scratch, so... Uh, S Wolf Dab, uh, said, what, where's Saberson pulling in its MLB projections from? And then what's factored into the projections? Uh, we make our own projections. Uh, and actually it's a lot better than that. We, our projections come from full play-by-play -play game simulations of every game on the slate. Um, this is true of, of every sport we support. Um, so when you see Saberson here, for example, and you look at a guy, um, you know, let's actually pick a batter because I think it's a little bit more interesting. You look at Mookie Betts, who is projected for on average 9.97. Uh, that is actually just kind of a number that describes the full range of outcomes of what Mookie Betts might do playing baseball tonight. Uh, we have a full range of outcomes for him based on these game simulations. Right. So we can see here, yeah, yeah, he's projected for a little under 10 points, but actually his most common outcome is zero points, happens 20% of the time. Uh, he has game simulations and buckets of Sims where he scores 40 points, which I'm sure um, does not come as a surprise to anybody that has watched Mookie Betts play baseball before. Right. Um, so the value of this is immense. Right. The problem, basically, one of the fundamental problems with most other DFS tools out there is that they hand you averages. Uh, and they hand you a traditional optimizer that optimizes for averages and said, and they say, you figure out the rest, right? Well, averages often are not the most common outcome. They're not even necessarily like descriptive of what's likely to happen. And even if they were, they're not what we want to beat GPPs, right? We want upside outcomes. Uh, so because we have these game simulations here, right? And we can actually pull from those sims and build lineups that are optimized for upside rather than for average performance and just build better quality lineups overall. Um, if you want more detail about what specifically goes into our baseball Sims on our YouTube channel, right? This is the Saberson YouTube channel. This is the live video that you are watching right now. Uh, just down a bit in the MLB DFS 2022 section, how the best MLB DFS simulator works. Uh, this was a stream I did with Matt and Will who are both like work on our Sims and models um, earlier this, this year about how it works. Um, go into a lot more detail than I can here on stream uh, about 
about how our sim works. So I'd go check that out. Um, all right, cool. Uh, let's keep it going here. Um, so another follow-up from Jam, uh, from Jen, I'm sorry. Uh, very helpful, thanks. So you tend to use your research build more for fading than for bumping. I often use it uh, to find a team to bump up. Detroit yesterday, for example, so just wondering if this is sound. It is sound. You just need to be aware here uh, of, like, I think it's just important to put these these things into context, right? So let's go see. Let's go see if we can find a team that we want to play based on our research build. And I bet, I bet you we can, right? So in this case, I'm going to look for a team whose probability of success, actually, I'm going to build a new one because I feel like the projections have changed since we've been streaming. So I'm going to build a new research build because uh, I want to. I think the projections have changed. And I think it'll be more interesting answering this question with more up-to-date information. Um, but while this is building, I mean, it's perfectly fine to do that. I think you should just like, you think you should be a little bit more potentially cautious with your approach, right? Like yesterday, uh, you found the Tiger Stacks, which I'm sure worked out very nice. Um, they were probably an under-owned team in a research build. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, given yesterday that on stream, we ran a research build and saw that Sean Manea was likely to be over-owned. Uh, I actually think he was likely to be the most over-owned pitcher on our research build yesterday. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense that the Tiger Stacks were probably at least a little bit under-owned. But the probability of them being the optimal stack or the probability of any given Tigers batter being in the optimal lineup was, I would I would guess, 5% or less. And they were 1% owned or less, right? So you should have that number in mind when making that decision, right? Like, I think it's perfectly fine to say, oh, I want some Tigers, but I don't think it's perfectly fine to say I want 100% Tigers unless you're okay with a very volatile strategy, right? So here, let's let's look and see if we can dig one up for tonight. So let's look and see if we can find, there's two ways I like to do this for what it's worth. The first is to look in order of, I sort by exposure, which is basically highest probability of being in the optimal lineup to lowest. And I look for, you know, what are the first players that are showing up um, that are neutrally or positively leveraged? Um, and actually it looks like, like right off the bat, we have a couple here. Dodgers might potentially be a little bit interesting here. Um, Giants might as well. Um, Toronto potentially as well. Um, Phillies. There's a lot of, looks like a lot of different ways to go. You can also sort by leverage and look at positive leverage to lowest leverage and say, what are the, what are the most underappreciated teams overall on tonight's slate? And we have Phillies and Atlanta, which make a lot of sense. Good hitting teams against good pitchers uh, often pop this way, right? The Phillies have a lot of power, a lot of good hitters on their team. The Braves have a lot of power, a lot of good hitters on their team. Makes a lot of sense that Nola or Strider could get lit up tonight to me. So makes sense. Houston, I have no, honestly, to be completely honest, I have no idea why Houston's not actually going to be a little bit chalkier than they are, right? Um, I mean, I guess unless you're a big Frankie Montas believer, but um, that to, to me, like I, I, I actually kind of like the Houston stack quite a bit here tonight. Um, Mets, right? couple other teams here, uh, more Braves. But remember, keep this number in the back of your mind, right? Or if you want to come over and look at the teams, right? Like what is the actual probability of a Braves stack being in the optimal lineup? 4.3%, right? So when it comes time to make some decisions here, right? 
Whereas when I'm fading the Red Sox entirely, this is kind of what I was talking about with the probabilities earlier. When I'm fading the Red Sox entirely, that probability is on my side because I'm banking on a 10% outcome not happening, right? 90% of the time, it's at least in my favor. When you're banking on a specific team, you are counting on a particular probability. So you should be, I, I think you should approach somewhat with caution there. Um, so what I might do instead is if I decide, hey, I want to get some Braves and Phillies and Houston stacks, right? I'm not going to go and lock them in. We're actually getting 35% Houston anyway. So no worries there. We're getting 35% Atlanta too as well. So maybe the one team that's missing is the Phillies. Um, where are they? I actually may not have any Phillies in my pool here, um, but we'll use the Dodgers instead, right? That was another team that popped up. Maybe I'm saying I want 20% Dodgers instead of like locking them in. So Short answer, this is absolutely sound. You can it is perfectly fine to use a research build in that way, but you should be just be prepared that you are you are just just purely from a probabilistic standpoint, you are taking on more risk when you use the research build to pick a particular team to play instead of a team not to play. So okay. Uh, Ryan says he bet the unders on Rodon, Nola, and McClanahan strikeouts. Can't wait for double-digit Ks from all of them. Yeah, those are like the those are the least fun bets to sweat. I think uh, is when you're you're you've got the strikeout under on an ace pitcher, um, especially if they start if they just like strike out the side in the first inning. It's the worst. Um, I think I have I have uh, McClanahan. I'm I have the under on McClanahan as well. We'll see if that game plays. Um, and I might have the NOLA bet as well. Not totally sure. But Sean says, how can you add the leverage column to the projection screen? At the moment, there's no way to do that. Um, there, The leverage is like the leverage describes information from a build, right? Like you need an exposure. You need a pool and you need the ownership projection, obviously. So it kind of doesn't really make sense uh, in the, the context of a projections thing. Uh, we have talked about, we talk about, I talk about these research builds all the time. Uh, we've actually talked about basically like running research builds internally and then just publishing kind of like the results of that number, like optimal percent as a number, as an actual player statistic or something like that in the projections tab. That's something we have talked about doing at the moment. You kind of have to do it the manual way um, and, and view it this way. So all right. Um, Chuck says there's a column showing the stack pool exposure. Is this a new feature? Uh, is it? Is it? Um, there is a feature. There is a uh, update coming out today. Um, and maybe it came out while we were on the stream. Let's see. Uh, I might have to like log out and log back in maybe uh it did okay uh yeah it did come out um let's see uh hold on let me this is fun this is cool uh we get to see this live on stream together here we have a couple features that i can show you guys uh, i'm gonna log out and log back in here real quick just to make sure i have the the most most up-to-date version of the app um but i bet let's see Let's see here. All right. 
for the uh, for the for the gang still hanging out with me here today. Uh, you guys get uh, a bit of a treat here. Let's run a new build. If you were playing around on uh, on SaberSim here right now, um, you might beat me to it. You might see you might see the updates before I get the chance to show them here. Um, so let's uh, let's run one. Let's see. Chuck had also said I wanted to see this information at a glance, as opposed to having to look at the entire pool and then switch back to my lineups. Yes, yes, indeed. I can relate. We can all relate, uh, which is why we've added this, uh, among other things. So we'll give this a second to build. I'm building. I'm building anticipation here. Oh, I'm out of water. Not good. I always, I always like to take my water break when the when the lineups are building, but I'm dry here, guys. It's okay. We'll make it. Rogue said 10 out of 10 stream. Thank you for being here. This was a good one. This was one of our busiest uh, streams we've had in a while. Um, had some new faces in here as well, which is, which is pretty awesome. Um, so, okay. Let's see here. Yeah. All right. Um, well, first of all, uh, Matt, while you're here, am I missing it? Uh, am I missing pool? The pool column? Um, because I don't see it. Um, let's see. There it is. All right. So new column. Pool. The percentage of all lineups in your pool here uh, that have a particular player or uh, stack uh, or stack type right out of the gate, right? This is, I mean... Pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, especially, you know, if you like to make a lot of edits to exposures, you can kind of now just see dynamically like how flexible your pool is to what you're trying to do anyway, right? Like, um, you know, if like another way, if you had decided, you know, based on your process that you wanted to totally fade Spencer Strider, right? Like you, by doing so, you eliminate 35.5% of your pool immediately, right? Um, I think this is also pretty cool for like research build applications and things like that. Um, as with always with these new features here, like I will be interested to see what everybody comes up with in terms of how this information is useful for them. I'm not even sure exactly how I'm going to, to use it exactly yet, but I think it is at the very least just cool to see like what your pool looks like when you're building your actual set of lineups without having to exactly as Chuck said, flip back and forth between the two. So that's great. Um, but I think the, uh, the main event, so to speak here, um, or kind of the, the flagship component of this release here is you can now edit lineups live in the app. Um, this was a, just a huge project from our front end development team. Uh, so a big shout out to, to everybody on the SaberSim team that worked uh, on this. Um, I mean, basically rebuilt the lineup building tool from DraftKings or FanDuel from scratch in the SaberSim app. So let's say you were looking at this and you're like, I need one single lineup that I want to play in high stakes. And I love this lineup, except I've already decided that I will never play Jose Barrios again. Uh, now you can make an edit here and change that here and save that lineup. Um, so in this particular case, there's not a, another, actually, yeah, maybe you play Mitch White instead, right? You come over here, put Mitch White in, save the lineup, and now boom. Um, 
this lineup is now the same lineup as it was with Mitch White here in it instead. Um, couple notes about this. So first of all, once you've edited a lineup, this information down here at the bottom is is basically just like is is not valid anymore. We won't recalculate it. It just it will show grayed out what it was before you made any changes here. Um, another thing to note here is, and this is also kind of a new feature, is that this will editing a lineup locks it, right? So you now have the ability to lock a lineup, which basically means that lineup, no matter what, will be a part of your lineup pool, right? We will never eliminate that from your lineup pool. Um, and you know, that's partially because just as I mentioned before, right? Like we can't, we stop calculating saver score once you start editing lineups. So by locking it, we make sure that you don't lose it. Um, I do think there is actually kind of another cool, sneaky application of that locking, um, option here. And it's especially for people that, um, like to kind of hand pick lineups, or maybe particularly if you're playing just a handful of lineups, um, you know, maybe you're scrolling through your lineup pool. And as you're going along, you find one lineup that like really jumps out to you, uh, as a lineup that you just want to make sure you end up playing. Uh, you can now just kind of lock it and it will just you'll make sure that it's there, right? You won't, you won't lose it. Uh, that does increase the size of your lineup set. So like in this case, if you're only playing 20, you would want to come back here now and then put that back down to 20. But then we make sure that this lineup ends up in your por your portfolio of lineups as well. So when we come back here, um, we can see now that, you know, our lineup pool of 20 includes that lineup 33 that we had identified that we locked. Um, but Again, I think the, the lineup editing tool is, is really kind of the coolest part about this. Um, one other thing, you can reset this as well if you need to. So if you did that by accident, um, just want to turn it back to what it was, you can just click the reset button um, and Jose Barrios ends up back in the lineup. Um, but it is really just a, is really slick uh, it's, and it's really fun to play with. It's really cool. Um, so I think... I, I just think it's gonna be a lot of fun, especially again, if you're playing a handful of lineups, just a few lineups, um, you, even if you're, even if you are playing 20 or 150 and you just see a lineup that you're like, wow, like that one player just needs to be swapped. Um, now you can do it. So, uh, cost says, is this feature available for all sports in the app? Yes, should be. Um, as, as always, let us know if you run into any issues, but, uh, it should be out there for everything. Um, so I know this, this, uh, this solves a lot of, you know, I get a, get a lot of questions on this show, um, especially as we get closer to football where people are like, hey, love this lineup. Don't like that part. What can I do to get less of that? Well, now you can just literally change it, um, which is pretty, pretty slick, pretty cool. So uh, your exposures as well. One thing I forgot to mention here um, will update as you're doing this. So like if we come back here, right, like you can kind of use these tools together. So let's make that change one more time here. So let's drop Barrios. Let's add Mitch White in instead, right? Um, now we have a Mitch white lineup, right? And like, maybe you're saying, okay, like not only do I want to, um, not only do I want to remove Barrios from that lineup, but I also just don't want to play a lot of him period, right? These, these, these different tools can still be used in combination and in conjunction with each other. So, um, but cool. So super excited about that. But anyway, uh, I don't see any other questions coming in. I do see a lot of excitement here. Um, people are pretty stoked about it. Neil said, this is awesome. Uh, Chaos said, wow, love this. Um, so awesome, awesome to see that here. 
Um, but cool. Well, I think we will go ahead and wrap up today's stream on that note. But before I get out of here, one very important note here. Um, tomorrow, this time, office hours on Wednesday, uh, we will have Eric joining me here on stream today uh, to talk about his work on the pitch count model uh, within the the baseball sims. Um, very important part of kind of simulating baseball. Uh, a very, I guess, very uniquely baseball thing uh, is figuring out how long a given pitcher is going to stay in the game, um, especially just because there can be a ton of variance there. Uh, and it dramatically impacts the way that a game is projected or, or, or simmed or what the outcomes of that game actually look like. Um, Eric is going to come on and talk about the work that he's been doing to improve that portion of the, the baseball sim model here tomorrow and answer any questions that you guys have. Um, so if you have questions about, you know, I know there were questions here today uh, about how, how we come up with our baseball projections, um, how our simulations work. There were questions about that yesterday as well. Um, I think it will be really interesting to hear Eric talk about at least like this particular part of it here tomorrow on stream and all the improvements he's made uh, over the past couple weeks. So um, come join us tomorrow. Come ask Eric any questions you have about that. In the meantime, enjoy the lineup editor. Uh, I know I will. I will probably be playing with it here quite a bit this afternoon. Uh, enjoy the 13 game slate. Pay attention to the weather. Definitely another weather slate here tonight. Um, and good luck and enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. And I will be back here tomorrow with Eric. See ya.